Hello, everyone. It's Andy Roberts returning to the seat of the Nasty Pasty podcast for the first time since Christmas. How is everyone? I hope everyone's hanging in there and keeping safe during these extremely turbulent times. As it's been quite a while, I think everyone listening to this right now is completely aware of just how much the world has gone to shit, basically, in the last few months. It's now early June, and since January, the entire world has been gripped by a virulent pandemic caused by a deadly strain of coronavirus called COVID-19. I'm not sure if anyone really expected to live through such an unprecedented worldwide catastrophe like this, but nevertheless, the majority of the world is behind closed doors, self-isolating, and operating under countrywide lockdown rules to prevent the spread of the virus. And if that were not enough, America has completely erupted into mass protests and riots, accompanied by utterly unjustifiable police brutality in the wake of yet another murder of a young black person, George Floyd. Now, over the past few years, it's become almost impossible to not hear of the deeply ingrained racism in the US justice system and its police forces across the country, due to the countless smartphone recordings of these horrors happening in real time. Floyd is not the only victim unjustly killed here. We have Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Ezel Ford, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, Ahmed Aubrey. I mean, the list isn't exhaustive. But the US has been probably the most visible country in terms of black inequality and systemic racism. But it's now swollen to the point where we all have to accept our complicity in racism. Even though I'm a minority myself, being a gay man and a member of the LGBTQ community, I automatically benefit from racism because of my white skin, which gives me automatic privilege in many everyday situations. I never have to think about how I might have to present myself near police officers. I never have to think about retaining hold of my shop receipts for dear life in case of an accusation. And I never have to worry about having a visible feature of my body to be a catalyst for discrimination. It's never been more important to say that black lives matter, because while some people may argue that all lives matter, which is of course true, black lives are currently at the moment under threat more than anyone else. It completely glosses over the importance that the black community need our help now more than ever. The events happening in America are just a microcosm of what exists all the world over, even in our country of Great Britain. This is a country founded upon the destructive imperialistic colonisation of other countries, pilfering of their culture, resources and even their peoples. Our values have been distilled through a crucible of racism, hatred, xenophobia and superiority. Some of our nation's most beloved cultural entertainments are based on racist stereotypes and humour at the expense of the other. Our Prime Minister has referred to people of colour as having watermelon smiles and denigrated them as Piccaninis, whilst our own law enforcement statistically stops and searches people of colour more than any demographic. And in one of the worst crimes of all, we simply glaze over our own horrific and unforgivable colonial past and we refuse to teach our children of the horrible womb which birthed our nation. It's not enough now to simply be an anti-racist. Critical voices have to speak up about it because there's the real potential here for change. As an LGBT person, I'm well aware that under the right conditions, violent protest can achieve radical change and actually benefit future generations. We have a chance here. Everyone's doing what they can, and I feel as though I can't just simply sit back and be silent right now. 
Unfortunately, my power is limited. I don't hold any influential positions in my community or country as a whole. And my main outlet is that I talk about exploitation or horror films on a podcast. It's hardly going to break barriers or reform laws in the UK. But I feel that I can at least do something to celebrate our black friends, artists and heroes. To let them know that we're behind them. I believe wholeheartedly that Black Lives Matter, and I hope that my feelings do come through in this special episode. I'm going to be covering three films in one episode today, which is the largest one I've ever attempted. Nasty Pasty has generally covered films of a specific era, usually from the early 60s to the late 80s, and this one won't be an exception to that. There's countless talent in the black horror community today, but I feel that they'd feel a little anachronistic and out of the spectrum of what Nasty Pasty tends to cover. So in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, and looking to the past for older examples, all three films today have black directors, and they're primarily in the black exploitation genre when it was just emerging at the turn of the 70s. There's other examples like Sugar Hill from 1974 or Black Mama, White Mama from 73, which I'd have liked to have included on this episode, but I felt it might be defeating the point to have black exploitation films that were by white directors. Sugar Hill is on my list to do at some point anyway, so we'll leave that one for the time being. Some listeners out there might not necessarily agree with my sentiment, and they may say stuff like, I don't want to hear about politics, or this has nothing to do with politics or horror films. And as much as it's wonderful to have listeners, the truth is is that I don't do this podcast for money, I don't really do it for attention, and I don't do it for fame either. I do it because I happen to love films, and I especially love talking about them. This has always been a passion project, and to those who say that politics have no place here, the very idea of video nasties were political. They were weaponized against the masses and used to imprison people who committed no crime, simply because the political party in charge wanted to regain control of their electorate by cooking up a partisan gambit. And they won as well. We criticize them for this. Black Lives Matter may just be a political movement to you, but the safety of people's lives is even more paramount than the simple availability of films. So if anyone out there feels that they need to unfollow or criticize because I dare to say that Black Lives Matter yet they still get angry at the government for taking away some horror films from their store shelves, that's pretty much your problem. It matters not to me if numbers dwindle, but it matters that people start caring about the lives of their fellow human beings. And just maybe, if some of the information I can present makes a difference to one person's life, then it was worth it. Anyway, little mini rant over. Today's films are 1971's Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, directed by Melvin Van Peebles, 1973's Ganja and Hess from director Bill Gunn, and finally 1976's Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde from director William Crane. In addition, I'll be doing a collaboration soon with Johnny Larkin from Screaming Queens podcast in the very near future, returning to director William Crane with his seminal horror flick, Blackula. Out of the three, Sweet Sweetback is likely considered the most influential, having an effect on the following year's Shaft, as well as black protagonists in general, but the other two are just as important and worthy of remembering. Since we've talked about black exploitation before on the show, I'll instead be talking about what was happening in the US at the time of the film's making or release, whilst discussing the film in question. In the same tradition, I'll cap off the film discussion with some release information and then go into the film's effect in the cinema post-release. With that said, let's start it off with Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. (laughs) 
group of sex workers gaze happily upon a small ten-year-old boy who hungrily devours food that they've provided for him. One of them entices the young boy into her room and rapes him, dubbing him Sweetback for his supposed sexual talents. Many years later, Sweetback has remained at the brothel with the women, becoming part of their nightly acts, when a pair of Caucasian police officers arrive shortly after a murder has been committed. They bargain with the brothel owner, Beetle, to borrow one of his staff as a scapegoat for the crime to make them look competent, promising to return them safely within a week. Beetle offers up Sweetback, and he's taken away by the police, only for the police to stop when a disturbance is reported nearby, arresting a young Black Panther member called Moo Moo. Getting out of the car and taking their suspects for a walk, they begin to physically abuse Moo Moo while he's restrained, causing Sweetback to beat the officers unconscious. By morning, officers have swarmed the brothel, with Sweetback still on the run. He eventually returns to the brothel and meets Beetle, who is fairly indifferent to Sweetback's plight, and on his exit he is detained by two police officers who question how many accomplices he had. When they notice his bloody handcuffs, they immediately warn their superior, who unsuttily requests that they beat Sweetback for information. Tiring of their initial blows, they attempt to take Sweetback somewhere more isolated, only for him to escape when a street gang destroys their car with a petrol bomb. Still handcuffed, Sweetback descends into the sewers and flees the area, making it to an old flames of his, where he trades sex for the removal of the handcuffs. Cops arrive and torture Beetle for the whereabouts of Sweetback, while Sweetback himself arrives at a local church to hide out, but the priest is unwilling to let him disturb the addicts in his care and attract police attention to them. Reaching a gambling den, Sweetback reunites with Moo Moo and is driven across Los Angeles to the city limits, where they spend the night in an abandoned building. Waking up, they discover that it's a meeting place for a biker gang, whose female leader challenges him to a fight and offers Sweetback a choice of how to do it. Sweetback chooses fucking and has sex with her in front of the crowd, winning his freedom. The gang redirect them to a small empty bar to hide out until morning, where they'll send help. But during the night, two cops enter the building and attempt to arrest the pair, but Sweetback resists arrest and they're shot at, forcing him to kill them. Moomoo is shot during the incident, but the biker's gang's help soon turns up and is unable to take both of them across the border to Mexico. Insisting that Moomoo is their future, Sweetback allows Moomoo to be taken to safety. The police chief becomes increasingly angry at the evasiveness of Sweetback, warning his officers that an uprising may be on their hands. The investigation becomes ever more violent, with the police brutalising any black man they come across. One such man is murdered and the now deaf and wheelchair-bound Beetle is called to identify whether it's Sweetback, which it is not. The questioning of the black community continues, including a confused woman who repeatedly claims that she may have had a son called Leroy, but she can't remember with clarity. After a near miss from a police officer's shotgun, Sweetback hitches a ride atop a van across the city and reaches the sandy outskirts. The police pursue him in a car, but discover that upon catching him, it's actually a random white man wearing Sweetback's clothes, who explains that he was paid to run and distract the police. An injured Sweetback, wearing the other guy's clothing, forms a makeshift bandage using sand and a rag for his injuries, before hitching another ride onto a truck transporting concrete tubes, and then subsequently, a truck transporting immigrants. Nearing the Mexican border, Sweetback hitches a ride on a train into even more isolated territory, forced to drink from puddles to maintain his strength. 
The police eventually swarm on a hippie gathering where music is playing, looking for Sweetback, who manages to evade notice by having sex with a woman in the bushes, his face obscured. Fleeing as soon as they leave, he makes a break for the nearby Mexican border and is spotted by the officers who use a set of dogs to chase him down. Knowing that he'll reach the border before they can, they set the dogs loose to savage him. The dogs, however, are found dead floating in the river, as Sweetback is revealed to have finally escaped, with a message at the end claiming that he will one day return to collect some dues. Yes, the good night, fairy godmother. Why didn't you know that all good thanks had fairy godmothers? Every dollar we make, the Guinness get 20, the police get 40, and Goldbergs get 50. Anybody can tell you that don't add up to a dollar. That adds up to a dollar and a dime. No, I haven't seen him, sweetheart. I haven't seen the captain. I mean, I, I don't want to see him. You just keep leaning and leaning and leaning. Get the f*** off of my back, man! I'm, I'm clean, man. Look, I'm clean. There's nothing there. Look, look! When I get pissed off, man, I will throw a not-your-bone nigger fit on you, understand? Leave! Split! Leave, mother... By the turn of 1970, the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 had already been enacted, along with other pieces of legislation in subsequent years, to strip away legal discriminations against black Americans. Despite these legislatory implementations, racial relations were not harmonious overnight, and black Americans continued to suffer intense scrutiny, pressure, and outbursts of violence from their white counterparts. Activist Malcolm X was shot in New York City in 1965, followed by Martin Luther King in 1968, which had prompted the Holy Week Uprising, a series of riots and protests all over the country, which had been unparalleled since the Civil War era. It's notable then to say that the protests that are currently happening at the moment across the world are the most significant since this event in '68. The Black Panther Party had arisen in 1966 to combat what it saw as the continual societal injustice towards black people, especially in regards to police violence towards African-American citizens. Due to their sacrifices, the US introduced free breakfast for children programs, and they notably brought national attention to the growing problem of sickle cell anemia. Unfortunately today, their fight against police brutality continues in spirit. It was around this time that director Melvin Van Peebles was in the midst of making a comedy film for Columbia Pictures called Watermelon Man. Van Peebles had a rich background across many different disciplines. He had a degree in literature and had a career in the Air Force before working in San Francisco as a cable car gripman. It was during a regular day at work that he was approached by a passenger and it was suggested to him that he should be a filmmaker. Having no formal training or education in the area, Van Peebles just decided to experiment and go for it, turning out a few shorts and learning about the process of filmmaking on the job, as it were. He ambitiously went to Hollywood to try and find work, but he was unsuccessful and decided to change tactic, moving to the Netherlands to study astronomy. He eventually worked as a writer for various European magazines, for French theatre, and for himself, publishing four novels. 
deciding to return to filmmaking, Van Peebles adapted his 1968 novel, The Story of a Three-Day Pass, which immediately caught the attention of Hollywood producers, who mistakenly assumed he was an undiscovered European author. They asked him to helm an upcoming comedy film, which led to him working on the aforementioned Watermelon Man. He was reportedly unhappy during production, and he clashed with writer Herman Rauscher, who wanted to poke fun at the idea of white liberal America, whilst Van Peebles wanted it to be more of empowering of black people. As part of his dissatisfaction, he chose not to film an alternative ending for the movie, which would have labelled the entire film a dream, and he also refused a film deal to direct an additional three films for Columbia. Instead, he wanted complete creative control over his own film next, and this led to the genesis of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. The idea for the plot came to Van Peebles during an excursion to the Mojave Desert, as he sat down in front of the harsh sun and pondered the idea of freedom from oppression. He started writing the script, as it were, but realised quite quickly that he would need financing, and since the studios didn't want to touch this type of material, Van Peebles was forced to finance it alone. He notably obtained a $50,000 loan from the now-disgraced sex offender Bill Cosby, who refused to have anything to do with the film's copyright or production, only stipulating that he wanted to be paid back. Wanting his production to be as authentically black as possible, he chose a shooting crew and cast comprised of inexperienced acquaintances, as he wanted to avoid any sophisticated filmmaking style so early in the process. Due to a combination of expecting negative reaction from the mainstream film industry and wanting as much material to work with, he left the script in a relatively loose state, with room to manoeuvre around the solid ideas that he had for each scene. He likened this to cooking, with a lot of random ingredients that could be improved with seasoning, i.e. the editing stage. Filming started in May of 1970 and lasted a mere 19 days, mostly to reduce the chances of his cast from appearing too differently between the shooting days and the takes. It was quite a chaotic shoot, mainly because the crew were on edge as they were filming without the support of any film unions. Because of this, they armed themselves with guns during production, and because of Van Peebles' approach of directing huge swathes of scenes at a time, a process which he called globs, tensions would run pretty high at times. In one particular instance, when one of the Hell's Angel bikers used in the biker gang scene was dissatisfied with how long it was taking, he took out a knife threateningly, forcing Van Peebles to command some of his film crew to raise their rifles and order him to stay for the rest of the filming. This wasn't the only instance of trouble, as when they were shooting the scene where the police car is petrol-bombed, a real fire truck turned up to put out the blaze, which was filmed and then integrated into the final scene. It transpired that although Van Peebles had received a permit, it hadn't been filed in adequate time before the scene was shot, thereby leading to an official response from the emergency services. Of course, Van Peebles himself was heavily involved in the film scenes, as he decided to play the title role of Sweetback after all the auditions suggested that alternative actors demanded more dialogue for the character. Van Peebles disagreed with this, and ended up playing the character as well as performing the multitude of stunts required for the role. A moment where Sweetback jumped from a precarious bridge had to be done nine different times, but miraculously he was uninjured. The same could not be said, though, for the film's multiple sex scenes, which were done unsimulated and unprotected, which caused Van Peebles to contract gonorrhea from one of the actresses. 
In a humorous side note to this affair, Van Peebles was able to successfully claim compensation from the Directors Guild as he specified that he was injured on the job and he used the proceeds from this to stock up on extra film reels. In spite of these challenges and with the odds against him, it's wonderful to see that Van Peebles was able to pull off such an interesting and thought-provoking piece of filmmaking. That said, the opening scenes are pretty hard to watch as there's clearly an abusive rape of a child by a much older woman, which is the moment that he's christened as Sweetback. Being born from this act of abuse, of which he has no control, almost permeates the entire film's events. His predicament is almost entirely out of his control, and he's powerless to stop his abuse at the hands of a much larger power, mostly characterised later in the film as the man. Of course, this term has regional variants like them, the ones in charge, or as George Orwell put it, the striped trousered ones who rule, or as Ken Casey put it in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the combine. But in America, it's more commonly referred to as the system, a seemingly omniscient and all-knowing societal structure that oppresses has been around for a long time in fiction. But in Sweetback's case, the feeling of overwhelming discrimination and danger is palpable in the film's multiple instances of strangeness and abstraction. As the opening scene continues, the young boy is transformed into the adult Sweetback, indicating that he's been forced into this sexually submissive role for most of his life. The next scene is equally as confusing, as a sex show at the brothel uses two women who play out a traditional heterosexual pairing, with one of them wearing feminine attire and the other donning a fake beard with masculine garb. They simulate sex and are interrupted by the sudden appearance of another performer who dubs himself the Good Dyke Fairy Godmother, showering the audience with the emissions from a sparkler. In a really groundbreaking moment of surrealism, the masculine female performer strips away her clothing only for her breasts to become the grisly chest of Sweetback. The audience don't react in any way to a supposed magical nature of what's just happened. Rather, they simply cheer on the subsequent sex scene. In an echo of Sweetback's childhood, he's expected to perform for his audience, in the same missionary position and with all the pressure of the braying crowds. In fact, the majority of the sex scenes are all structured in the same way, with Sweetback expected from various pressures to assume the missionary position and, in effect, fuck his way out of trouble. In a particularly symbolic moment, he's even handcuffed and further unable to resist his duty. While this function of Sweetback's character is criticised as perpetuating the stereotype of the hypersexual Mandingo, a well-endowed black man with a ceaseless and voracious sexual appetite, I think the fact that it's imbued on the young Sweetback from a fellow African-American, no less, in an abusive context, is symbolic of how black people are often blamed for their own poor circumstances. Not only that, but their systemic oppression from the rest of society is so deeply graven in their community that they hurt each other with dangerous stereotypes. The rest of the world that Sweetback inhabits is equally nightmarish. The cops are corrupt from the get-go, actually bargaining to simply use a black man's arrest to make them look good before promising to release him without charge. As they drive through the night, the viewer is visually assailed by the lights of the streets. Huge signs of lap-dancing clubs, bargain grindhouse cinemas, all peppered with frequent religious signs that scream, Jesus saves. 
This is likely a reference to the fact that a large percentage of the African-American population had adopted a form of Christianity in the wake of the civil rights movement, and still today the figure remains quite high, even in spite of the stereotyped image that the demographic consists of delinquents and criminals. When Sweetback finally starts running, the film adopts an absolutely bewildering flurry of experimental camera techniques, with quick pans, handheld shakiness, frequent dissolves and refocuses, frenetic zooming, and even some psychedelic acid-trippy transitions. It truly feels like a phantasmagorical pastiche of a mad world, one in which Sweetback is constantly running for survival. The moment when Moomoo and Sweetback play pool is probably the only break in the film's frenetic energy, even if it is short-lived. But for any interested in learning more, there's a whole chapter dedicated to the way that the narrative in Sweet Sweetback moves in a book by Gladstone L. Yearwood called Black Film as a Signifying Practice. And thanks to Callum Waddle for recommending this one to me. Sweetback, unfortunately, is not the only victim of this oppressive world, as the majority of the rest of the black characters all have their own problems. Just taking the montage sequences of the black community when responding to police interrogations, it actually feels unsimulated, as though the filmmakers actually just asked random people about the whereabouts of Sweetback. With the exception of the woman, of course, who claims that her children that she cares for are routinely taken from her, amidst her making items for the elderly residents of the community. Her statements are repeated in a surreal sense, almost representing the cyclical nature of her working and then caring for kids, only to have them taken away by the state when they get older and go bad. One of the most significant things that she says, however, is that she once had her own Leroy, but can't rightly remember. This is most likely Sweetback's birth mother and his birth name, but like the lady herself, there's no way to confirm if this is true. Other fleeting images speak volumes too, like the shoe shiner who jovially gyrates his bottom onto the shoe of his client, almost reenacting having the man's foot up your ass in a weird tableau vivant. There's also the three queer black men who in Stepford wife fashion deny knowing who Sweetback is, before throwing in a cheeky aside to let him know where they are. There's also the horrifying images of Beetle being violently deafened with gunfire by the cops, who eventually assault him to the point of being wheelchair-bound. The whole denial of knowing who Sweetback is seems fairly accurate to the codes of silence usually executed in black communities, who don't see, hear, or know anything on purpose as a way to dissuade police mistreatment or involvement. Even in areas where you'd expect some hope, there's none to be found in this movie. The neighbourhood church is particularly decrepit and miserable, converted mainly to a den where addicts can recover from their ailments, whilst black professionals who've left the street, so to speak, are still harassed by police attention. The exotic dancer exclaims, Why don't you leave? I'm clean, look. Nothing, nothing, no place, man. I'm clean, so stop leaning on me. I ain't on the street no more, understand? I ain't in the trade no more. I just want to be left alone. This is one of the most memorable characters in the whole pastiche, as her annoyance, frustration and pain are quite palpable in her performance, despite the fact that she's still aware of Sweetback enough to laugh at the fact that he's out of police hands. Another moment worthy of attention is when Sweetback enters a gambler's den and is regaled by the owner regarding the eternal struggle for money. He says, It's a real struggle from the womb to the tomb. Every dollar we make, the dentist gets 20, the police get 40, and Goldberg gets 50. Anybody can tell you that that don't add up to a dollar. 
that adds up to a dollar and a dime. That's why we're all so far behind. This moment is pretty significant because there's a recent speech by a black activist called Kimberly Jones at the end of May this year, during the initial week of the current protests. She likened the black way of life as going around the Monopoly board fairly, only to have all the other players seize your Monopoly money and properties, sending you back to go, and expecting you to not only catch up to them in less time, but to be grateful to them for the opportunity to do so. Let me explain to you something about economics in America. And I'm so glad that as a child I got an opportunity to spend time at PUSH where they taught me this, is that we must never forget that economics was the reason that black people were brought to this country. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Do you understand that? That's what we came to do. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Now, if I right now... If I right now decided that I wanted to play Monopoly with you, and for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money, I didn't allow you to have anything on the board, I didn't allow for you to have anything, and then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly, and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. That was Tulsa. That was Rosewood. There are pla- those are places where we built black economic wealth, where we were self-sufficient, where we owned our stores, where we owned our property, and they burned them to the ground. So that's 450 years. So for 400 rounds of Monopoly, you don't get to play at all. Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them, and then you have to turn it over to them. So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play. And every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game. They burn your cards. They burn your Monopoly money. And then finally at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. Now at this point, the only way you're going to catch up in the game is if the person shares the wealth, correct? But what if every time you share the wealth, then there's psychological warfare against you to say, oh, you're an equal opportunity higher. So if I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood. How can you win? How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have. That if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And if the social contract is broken, why the fuck do I give a shit about burning the fucking football hall of fame, about burning a fucking target? You broke the contract when you killed us in the streets and didn't give a fuck. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us.
You broke the contract, so fuck your target. Fuck your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. She is, of course, referring to two separate but equally disgraceful incidents of racial violence in U.S. history. The Tulsa Race Massacre occurred on May 31st and June 1st of 1921, when the wealthiest black community of businesses and enterprise in the entire United States was attacked by nearby white residents. This area was so rich that it was often colloquially referred to as the Black Wall Street, but based on racial tensions after a white 17-year-old was assaulted in the area, violence erupted outside the courthouse when the white crowds opened fire on the black crowd, who had assembled to safeguard the suspect from harm. This culminated in a full-scale riot, with black-owned businesses being set ablaze, residents being outright gunned on the street, and finally, law enforcement personnel were involved in private aircraft incursions on the area, dropping flaming projectiles to destroy buildings and residents alike. Disgustingly, this massacre was hushed up quickly in the aftermath and omitted from most official records. No charges were brought against anyone for the killings, which due to the cover-up and the frightened survivors being rendered silent by the horror of what happened, a final death toll has never been verifiable, with numbers ranging from 75 to 300. The other incident, Rosewood, happened just a few years later in 1923 in Florida, where racial tensions were already aggravated following a high number of lynchings of black men in the years prior. Known as a quiet town with a self-sufficient African-American population, another lynching of a black man brought attention to the small settlement when again the assault of a white woman was blamed on a black drifter, causing a white mob to descend on the town looking for answers. After torturing some local residents for suspicion of harbouring the drifter, the mob began to grow in numbers, eventually assaulting and murdering households of innocent people. They eventually took to torching local churches before targeting all buildings in Rosewood, hunting down any escaping residents in packs through the surrounding woodlands. Any survivors fled the area and didn't return, and almost overnight, Rosewood simply ceased to exist anymore. And what's more, not a soul was held responsible and no arrests were made. Just as Kimberly Jones says... Just when the African-American community begins to establish themselves into either self-sufficient employment, industry, accommodation, or even just peace, white people seem to find a way to take it from them through dishonest means and then continue to perpetuate the idea that they must integrate, they must follow their rules, and they have to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, even though they are the ones who continually move the goalposts. This same sentiment is expressed by the head of the gambler's den, they're already in deficit with their money as soon as they make it, and they're constantly kicked down and truly unable to achieve success. The other driving force of the movie are the police officers, who are portrayed as extremely corrupt, scummy, and thoroughly bigoted arseholes. They make a plethora of assumptions about their black suspects, and continually reinforce the idea that they've brought all negative police treatment on themselves, with casual utterances like, ''You've been stirring up the natives, kid.'' And, if you stayed home at night, you wouldn't get into all this trouble now, would you? By comparison, Sweetback's reprisal for the cops beating up Moo Moo is very purposeful. Using the handcuffs as knuckle dusters are as symbolic as you can get, pulverising them with their own tools of law, perverted into weapons. 
Not only is there this poetic element, but there's real emphasis on almost matching the exact number of blows that the cops inflicted on Moo Moo, almost taking up the same screen time. An eye for an eye, it seems. The character of Moo Moo, I suspect, is meant to represent the aforementioned Black Panther Party that was operating during the time this film was made, but I don't recall them actually confirming it in the film. It certainly seems that way, though, as Sweetback's other moment of altruism comes through when he sacrifices his chance to escape to Mexico by bike, instead offering Moo Moo as a replacement, describing him as their future. The police chief is even worse than the officers, and he's actually quite hard to watch considering current events. He slimily paints a different picture to the media as he receives a report from his officers, despite claiming that he has no secrets from the press, and he not so subtly instructs his officers to brutalise Sweetback to get information. He denigrates all black people as cop killers and frequently uses the N-word, even though he has two black officers in his own department. In expected fashion, he offers a token apology for his language to those officers, but simply skirts the issue by suggesting the officers can be a credit to your people if they help apprehend Sweetback. The very fact that he also can't seem to let go of Sweetback's crime, despite his officers being beat up whilst committing a corrupt and fraudulent act themselves, becomes quite absurd when it seems that the entire country is called upon to arrest the fugitive. Black people are beaten, arrested, and outright killed in the quest to get Sweetback behind bars. And in one chilling moment, police descend on a peaceful interracial couple and beat the pair of them in spite of no evidence that they've done anything wrong. Even in the film's ending, the police go a step further and allow hunting dogs to track and savage the fleeing Sweetback as though he were some kind of trophy animal. It has a real resonance with what's currently happening in the US, as the police seem to have become so uncaring and brutal to their citizens that they're tear-gassing, bludgeoning and pushing their citizens down of all races and ages in their quest to defend their treatment and killing of George Floyd. The police chief in the movie justifies his actions by stating, this is a democracy, not communism, we're all going to respect the law or pay the consequences. Whilst communism has always been a favourite American excuse for violence and paranoia, it's the sheer audacity of expecting its citizens to comply with the law when its own officers are so corrupt. Just as the cops in Sweet Sweetback are allowed and fostered to be corrupt, while Sweetback is aggrandised as the Antichrist, so too in real life are white citizens allowed to storm official buildings with assault rifles without any police reaction, while black communities can't peacefully protest without countrywide police brutality to meet them. Rather bizarrely, the group that you'd expect to be more lawless and brutal are the biker gang, who, upon discovering Moo Moo and Sweetback, hold off on immediate violence, stating, give them a chance, this is a democracy. The importance of this film can't really be understated, It's probably more relevant now than it was back in the 70s, especially as we should know better as a society by now. Just like the title implies, the film moves like a surreal, picaresque musical number, a hymn from the mouth of reality, as the opening text signifies. And its experimental editing and style reminds me a lot of the work of later cult favourites like Sam Raimi or Edgar Wright. A similar film about racial injustice would be released seven years later, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which was much more traditional in terms of filmmaking, but I can't help feeling that the title is a reference. This is a film with something to say, and a hell of a lot to unpack. So for me, it's definitely a film that you need to watch. 
In terms of casting, Van Peebles wanted to keep it within relatively inexperienced hands for a more authentic feel. To that end, not much of the cast really appeared in much else except for a few exceptions. The vile police commissioner, for example, was played by John Dullahan, who'd appeared in various bit roles in stuff like The Undergraduate, Garden of the Dead, The Thing with Two Heads, the original Battlestar Galactica, and even Apollo 13. Actor John Amos plays one of the bikers in the film. He'd be a prominent face in things like Touched by Love, Die Hard 2, Two Evil Eyes, Coming to America, Doctor Doolittle 3, and even the recent Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler. Finally, Lavelle Roby from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls also makes an appearance. As mentioned before, Melvin Van Peebles had almost complete creative control, functioning as the director, writer, producer, musician, and the main actor. He was assisted with producing by Jerry Gross, who also worked on I Drink Your Blood, Son of Dracula, and The Black Godfather. Cinematographer Robert Maxwell had worked on various cult films like Astro Zombies, House of Terror, The Severed Arm, and The Candy Snatchers, whilst the special effects guy Cliff Wenger later worked on many films like Coffee, Burnt Offerings, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, Police Academy 3, Toy Soldiers, The Game, Out of Sight, The Parent Trap, and even Fight Club. The film was released in 1971 in just two exclusive theatres in Atlanta and Detroit. Seemingly based on the title alone, it was a surprise hit, managing to gross over $15 million overall on a very modest $150,000 budget. It skipped UK theatres... And it also skimmed over the pre-VHS era, so it was unavailable to the audiences of the 80s in the UK. It did receive an uncut release in 1998 on VHS, which was the first time it was available in this country. But a subsequent release in 2005 was censored in the opening scenes. Previously, Van Peebles had claimed that the child, portraying the young Sweetback, was 17 years old but it soon became apparent that it was his own son, Mario Van Peebles, who was just 14 years old. The images, therefore, became unacceptable under the Protection of Children Act, and they were pre-cut by the distributor to omit the offending images. The BBFC insisted on a further five seconds to completely cover their bases, and it's this version that is currently distributed today. So, that was Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Let's go on to our next film... Bill Guns, Ganja and Hess.
Reverend Luther Williams relates a tale to the viewer, explaining that he works as a chauffeur and a stableman for a Dr. Hess Green, who he describes as an addict of blood. Sometime in the past, Hess is introduced to his new research assistant, George Mader, whom he takes home to his mansion. That evening after dinner, Mader relays a story about misinterpretation of words whilst filming in Holland, while Hess discusses his work on the Murthians, who were an ancient culture who had a desire to consume blood. After a strange dream, Hess awakens in the midst of the night, only to discover a drunk Mader atop a tree with a noose hanging beside him. Convincing him to leave the tree and come inside, Mader explains that he's attempted suicide before. After retiring to bed, Mader attacks Hess in bed and the pair struggle, eventually culminating in Mader grabbing a Murthian dagger, fashioned from bone, and stabbing Hess several times with it. After writing a cryptic suicide note, Mader bathes one last time before shooting himself in the chest, killing himself. The noise awakens Hess, who is inexplicably uninjured, and he arrives at the bathroom only to become overcome by desire upon seeing Mader's blood, and he drops to the floor, lapping it up with his tongue. The horrified Hess immediately prays in a field, but screams in horror at what's happened. Some undisclosed point in time later, Hess is in a doctor's office and intentionally detonates a firecracker in a waste bin, distracting the doctors enough to steal several pouches of fresh blood from their reserves. He later hosts a garden party and bonds briefly with his son Enrico, before serving himself chilled blood inside the house. Later on, he goes to a bar and meets a con woman who lures him to her room, seducing him and turning his back to her waiting accomplice, who tries to knife Hess in the back. The plan fails, and after shooting Hess several times, the pair are killed and have their blood drained. Some days later, Hess receives a call from Maida's wife, Ganja, who demands to speak to her husband. Telling her that Maida has disappeared, Ganja insists on staying with him until her husband returns. While tense at first, Ganja eventually begins to warm to Hess, and the pair share some intimate moments, eventually having sex. When his bloodlust returns in the evening, Hess runs to the attic with some blood, but Ganja notices and follows, with the pair having sex again. In the morning, Ganja acquaints herself with Archie, Hess's butler, while Hess himself goes into town. While away, Ganja aids Archie in bringing in the shopping, and boisterously demands access to Hess's wine cellar so that she can fetch a bottle, only for her to discover Maida's frozen corpse inside a freezer. Hess, meanwhile, has just killed a mother in an apartment building for her blood, and returns for evening meal, where Ganja accuses him of murdering her husband. After a silence, Ganja relates a childhood story as to why she is the way she is, and seems to sweep the news of her husband away, playing silly games with Hess throughout the house. A short time later, Hess and Ganja become married unofficially by his friend Luther, and after disposing of Maida's body, they consummate their marriage in bed. After mentioning that he wants her to live forever, Hess purposely carries on with sex even when the bloodlust returns, and he bites her, feeding on her blood. Ganja awakens, revealing it to have been simply a dream, but then Hess stabs her with the Murthian dagger when they go for a morning walk. Recovering, Ganja is fed fresh blood by Hess and appears to be permanently feeling sick, until Hess suggests that she have a little distraction. That evening, he invites a young man from a volunteer centre, whom Ganja seduces in the bathroom. The session becomes murderous when she bites him and drinks his blood, but she reacts with revulsion and terror as she realises what she is. 
Dumping the body in a nearby field, Ganja is upset when she believes the man is still alive, but Hess drags her away anyway. Back at the home, Hess voices his displeasure at what they've both become, finding a reference in his Murthian texts that the shadow of the cross can be used to kill them. Visiting his chauffeur Luther in the middle of his gospel, Hess steps forward when Luther asks if anyone needs praying for, and is subject to a blessing. Though he feels elated, he still reacts badly to the sign of the cross on the way out, and knows that it is indeed time. At home he sets up a cross, and implores Ganja to follow him. When the shadow touches his forehead, he falls dead instantly to the floor. Ganja abstains from doing the same and instead phones an ambulance who take Hess's body away. As the ambulance drives away, Ganja looks out at the grounds from the window and suddenly notices the young volunteer is alive, getting out of the nearby pool and running towards the house. He passes by an illusion of Hess's corpse on the ground as Ganja looks knowingly at the camera. To the black male children. Philosophy is a prison. It disregards the uncustomary things about you. The result of individual thought is applicable only to itself. There is a dreadful need in man to teach. It destroys the pure instinct to learn. The navigator learns from the stars. The stars teach nothing. The sun opens the mind and sheds light on the flowers. The eyes shame the pages of any book. Gesture destroys concept. Involvement mortifies vanity. You are the despised of the earth. That is as if you were water in the desert. To be adored on this planet is to be a symbol of success, and you must not succeed on any terms, because life is endless. You are as nameless as a flower. You are the child of Venus, and her natural affection is lust. She will touch your belly with her tongue, but you must not suffer in it, for love is all there is, and you are cannon fodder in its defense. In the wake of the release of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, the US was still undergoing massive paradigm shifts in race relations. Operation Push was established in 1971 to offer support for black citizens with regards to their rights and the justice system, and it still exists today, sometimes known as Rainbow Push. By the next year, in 72, the first African-American candidate ran for the Democratic nomination in the form of Shirley Chisholm, and she was even the first woman to do so. And then the early days of hip-hop were emerging too, in the Bronx in New York. The release of Melvin Van Peebles' film caused waves over the film world. Not only was the film profitable despite its budget, but it was all black-led in terms of casting, leading to a spate of imitators. After the release of the equally influential Shaft in later 1971, the genre of black exploitation was born since Hollywood noticed that black stars could earn the money. There is a bit of dichotomy here in that it's debatable whether these films would be the way they were if they had not been such money makers for the studios. 
There's a great resource which explores this further called Shaping the Future of African American Film, Color-Coded Economics and the Story Behind the Numbers by Monia White Nodonu, which is worth checking out. To that end, Sweet Sweetback would probably be considered a pure black film as it had no intentions of bowing to another studio's conventions or stipulations. Other films that came in its wake, possibly not so much, especially as a great majority of them were directed by white professionals. Other such films that came out were the women in prison film Black Mama, White Mama, the influential Blackula from director William Crane, and its sequel Scream, Blackula, Scream, Coffee, Blackenstein, Detroit 9000, and even the latest James Bond, Live and Let Die, incorporated some exploitation elements into it. Ganja and Hess is no such profit-focused film, as it was directed by Bill Gunn, a very renowned and intellectual playwright who had a real passion for theatre and prose. He also had a rather well-known circle of friends, including James Dean, who took many photographs of him, Marlon Brando, Eartha Kitt, and he even shared a house at one point with the brother of Nina Simone. The film began life in 1972 when an independent film company headed by Jack Jordan and Quentin Kelly reached out to Gunn, who had a reputation in the theatre industry, with a small budget of $350,000 and the desire to make a black vampire movie, seemingly attempting to cash in on the success of William Crane's Blackula, released just a few months earlier. Similar to Van Peebles, Gunn was uninterested in any such vampire flick, and he wanted to do the film in his his particular way. Luckily, both Jordan and Kelly were virtually newcomers to the movie game, so they allowed Gunn a large amount of control over the project, and he was able to write and direct how he pleased. Instead of making an obvious schlocky film based on the vampire myth, Gunn's vision is a much subtler beast, with a great deal of symbolism and subtext woven into the narrative which is essentially about how two dysfunctional black people enter each other's lives and eke out a small period of their existence together, bound by circumstances which have spiralled out of control. It starts off in quite a classic literary approach, with the voice of Luther Williams serving as our narrator, but like a lot of classical texts, he soon becomes quite unreliable due to him having virtually no presence in the film at all. With his testimony and depiction of the film untrustworthy and seemingly based on hearsay, the rest of the film has room to breathe and it forms its own identity outside of Luther's judgment. It is notable, however, that Luther talks about Hess in a fond way, claiming he's not a criminal, he's a victim. The film never makes mention of vampires. Rather, Hess is declared a blood addict, which is the first instance of many metaphors relating vampirism to drug addiction, which we'll get to later. We'll talk about the characters first. Hess is our main anti-hero, played by Dwayne Jones of Night of the Living Dead fame, as an anthropologist who's studying the ancient Murthian civilization, surrounding himself in a variety of artefacts, tomes and reports on the subject. He is intelligent, affluent and aware of his situation. It would have seemed very strange indeed in the early 70s for a black man to be chauffeured around in a flashy Rolls Royce, to live in an opulent mansion, and to retain a butler as well. In spite of this, his status as a black man is seen before all other aspects of his character, demonstrated in no better fashion than when one of Hess's chief concerns is that if Maida commits suicide using his tree and rope, the authorities would have license to search his private property. He expands further, noting that despite Maida prefers not to involve Hess, 
the fact that the rest of Hess's neighbours are white would cast severe doubt that another black man, Meader, in the area would no doubt be linked to Hess regardless of the context. Hess's isolation from the rest of society is also continually reinforced by the film's constant framing of him as the only person in a place, from bars, streets and even his own home. The fact that he's studying a reclusive culture that drinks blood becomes quite ironic when it appears that both he and Ganja later become the very thing that he's studying. Even throughout his transformation, Hess remains calm and contemplative, rather than the brutish creature that we would expect of a vampire. The struggle he feels, though, of his compulsions are also mirrored in the strange nightmares and the clash of religious feelings that he has. His nightmares portray the Murthians performing their rituals and looking upon him with indifference, whilst the white characters in his dreams also pass judgment with a sinister stare. It's as though he cannot appease any aspect of society, the whites who reject him for his skin colour, or blacks who reject him for his refusal to adhere to their expected behaviours. Even Ganja assumes wrongly that Hess is merely a member of staff working for the anthropologist, whom she conceives must be white. A small moment you might miss is when Hess reveals that he is in fact the Doctor, and the pair of them laugh very briefly and subtly, because they both know the reason why that assumption was really made. Ganja, on the other hand, is headstrong, stubborn, and oftentimes brusque. While certainly not unintelligent, she's very much an opposing force to the quiet reservation of Hess, with spontaneous and of-the-moment actions, such as delving into deep conversation about recreational drugs, being passionate with another man despite still being married, and initiating sex with Hess despite finding her dead husband in his basement. She can come across as quite contradictory in this sense, but this can be easily traced to the childhood memory that she relays. Her story about the snowball fight reveals that after having a fun day out with multiple other boys and girls, her mother took hold of the idea that she was instead dishevelled and panting because she was having sex with other teenagers, regardless of any evidence to the contrary. This is another stereotype of black women, the Jezebel, a sexually promiscuous lady based on the images of polyamory within tribal African communities. Similar to the damaging stereotype of the male Mandingo on men, Ganja began to believe that she is in fact a disease just meant to infect others, which may account for why her attitude is so brash and disagreeable, and why she's quick to brand Hess a mere servant rather than the doctor that he is. Her mistreatment from her own mother has allowed her to act how she pleases, knowing that others are going to pass judgement regardless. Despite not being in the film for that long, Maida's character is also quite complex and that he too struggles with his place in the white-dominated world. He prefers being called Maida rather than by his first name George, possibly clinging on to any semblance of professionality and status. Not long after he turns up does he become extremely drunk and contemplate suicide by hanging in Hess's garden. Not only does this sit uncomfortably close to looking like a self-lynching, but Maida later describes his inner feelings as a victim and a murderer struggling in his mind, suggesting that the part of him trying to survive through his harsh existence is crumbling at the overwhelming negativity of the man. We're not given an explicit reason for why Maida attacks Hess with the dagger, but perhaps it's Hess's conformity of social class and assimilation into the world of the whites, well, quite literally living in the same neighbourhood, that irks him so much. After realising the seriousness of what he's done, he pens a cryptic suicide note, which I've actually featured as part of the podcast episode just before. 
Dissecting it, he addresses all the black male children and warns that philosophy is a prison. It disregards the uncustomary things about you. At this critical point in Maida's life, he's decided that higher aspirations and ponderings about why the black race is so hated is beyond thinking about anymore. He goes on, There's a dreadful need in man to teach. It destroys the pure instinct to learn. And gesture destroys concept. Suggesting that the actions of those around him have ruined any chance that he may have had a success. Possibly that all anyone has ever taught him is his low place in society. Believing that you are the despised of the earth. He likens this as if you were water in the desert merely to be subject to intense heat so that you'll either evaporate into the air or be assimilated and grow stagnant into the sands where you belong. Maida then says, to be adored on this planet is to be a symbol of success, and you must not succeed on any terms. Again, referencing the idea that black people are often expected to have low success rates in almost all aspects of their lives, and to just be mere statistics. You are as nameless as a flower... In his own words, you are the child of Venus and her natural affection is lust. This seems to refer to the hypersexual stereotypes of both black men and women, before stating sadly that black people are cannon fodder. It's a very heavy suicide note that despite signalling Maida's impending death, indicates that he is, after all, a very intelligent, intellectual and thoughtful person himself but one who's succumbed to the ceaseless social pressures and discriminatory behaviours from his white brothers. Other minor characters also flag up some interesting points. For example, Luther is barely in the movie, but he represents the theme of duality in almost all the other characters. Hess is an affluent doctor who's secretly hiding his vampirism. Ganja is a stern married woman who deep down is quite open, spontaneous and unbridled by social norms. Luther is first shown as a deeply dedicated religious leader at a local church, but this is swiftly countered by his real job. He's Hess's chauffeur and stableman. Hess's butler Archie also has frequent presence early on in the film, but for the most part is just ordered around by Hess or poked fun at by Ganja. His character seems almost entirely functional, being present on screen when the characters need something, and even then, he's framed at odd angles that either obscure his face with scenery, positioning, or outright cut him off at the camera line. Even stranger is the fact that he simply disappears two-thirds through the movie, and by the time that Ganja is left behind in Hess's house, you wonder exactly where he went to. It is perhaps a disparaging symbolism purposefully enacted by Gunn to show disapproval for the servitude embraced by Archie's character, especially as he takes a lot of flack from Ganja without much reaction. The main crux of Ganja and Hess, though, is the vampire element, which in this scenario is portrayed almost parallel to the idea of drug addiction. Hess certainly acts as an addict would, in the first instance when he comes across Maida's sanguine corpse, he can't stop himself from just getting on the floor and lapping up the blood puddle with his tongue. The effects of addiction certainly remove a person's dignity and judgement in this sort of scenario, and you can easily imagine a person in the middle of a fix craving to act suddenly like a dog and consume hungrily if their drug is poured all over the floor. Even as he gets used to his new affliction, he turns to defrauding tricks at the doctor's so that he can steal fresh blood from a surgery store, much like an addict would raid medicine cabinets and pharmacies for their drug of choice. 
In a contrast to the desperate licking off a bathroom floor, it seems that Hess manages his bloodlust in a more enjoyable fashion when he has a steady supply, like pouring his blood into a crystal glass whilst at a garden party. But again, when he's desperate, he'll flee from his bed and go into the attic to consume his drug, away from the curious prying eyes of Ganja. The sound is also effectively employed here, booming out a loud droning buzzing sound, somewhat similar to an electric razor, interspersed with seemingly endless African chanting that reverberates and repeats ad infinitum. It certainly feels maddening to hear, and it's pretty spot on when they come to simulating how a craving would feel for an addict. The mother who is killed by Hess also seems to be symbolic again of drug use, as he leaves her baby to coo all alone as she lies dead in her bed, which is something that must happen in real-life overdose situations. When Ganja is also converted, the sex scene between Ganja and the volunteer looks very laboured, almost like you're actually on drugs. It feels stuffy, claustrophobic, their skin is glistening with sweat and the camera is rotating with a sickening incessancy and the music is clattering and cloying. Certainly a little bit different from other vampiric portrayals, but it does reference the contemporaneous drug problem that was experienced in America at the time. Another huge theme is that of religion, present almost from the get-go. We start off in a church, and during Hess's and Maida's initial meeting, a piece of scripture is uttered, specifically from the book of John, 654-56. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in them. As much as people love to take biblical passages and present them out of context, there's no denying that this symbolic representation of the blood of Christ giving everlasting life through a mass practice could easily be describing an arcane description of how to pass on a vampiric cannibalistic curse. Maida's suicide in particular is very religious. He's surrounded by a religious iconography, he dies in a cruciform pose on his stomach with arms flailed out, and is accompanied by the rebirth of Hess, previously assumed dead after Maida's attack. The consumption of blood is also comparable to a mass ritual, drinking the blood of Jesus, which makes Maida's death very similar to Jesus' sacrifice. The music is disorientating too, being quite soulful, but then incredibly sonorous and echoey, similar to the tones of a church organ. In these circumstances, the vampiric cravings for blood almost attain a sanctified status, and they're the catalyst for further holy actions. It's no surprise that Ganja's transformation is achieved in a much more religious setting, draped in cultural robes in Hess's tranquil grounds with a specific ritual involving the Murthian dagger. They even seem to consummate their wedding by dumping Maida's body into the fountain in the grounds, a bit like a corpse's baptism. As a counter to this, Luther's scenes of religion are edited and shot in such a way that belittles the impact. The gospel singing by his choir is rendered unintelligible by the variations in pitch and volume. His sermon is rough and choppy due to the frequent shakiness of the camera, and the message just somehow gets lost. One of the scenes near the ending in which Hess uses Luther's blessing as a last resort to rid himself of his curse goes on for such a long time that I can only assume it was intentional to frustrate the viewer. We know that this is not going to cure him, and we have to listen to Luther perform a token gesture to heal one of his flock. 
Even in Hesse's fevered dreams, the rituals of the ancient Mercians look a hundred times more contemplative and beautiful, with grand headdresses and dancing worshippers who embrace their culture with gusto. Luther's church just somehow feels a little chaotic, so it's no surprise that it is in fact the shadow of a crucifix that kills the vampire in this film. Quite literally, the dark side of religion stops the addiction dead in its tracks. For a film that you could describe as a black vampire film, Blackula this certainly ain't. It probably would require a few watches to really appreciate its nuances and initially underappreciated quirks, but it remains that Ganger and Hess is a fairly thoughtful and interesting piece of horror exploitation, And it doesn't even quite fit into those genres perfectly either. It functions a bit like a dramatic character study with a bit of a love story too. So it's quite multifaceted. But either way, it's certainly worth a watch. Hess was played by the very recognisable Dwayne Jones, who played the role of Ben in George Romero's genre-busting zombie horror, Night of the Living Dead. He was notably the first African-American actor to star in the role of the main hero in a mainstream horror film, but he was actually an English professor and a theatre director before he made his debut on the silver screen. While the role of Ben was initially considered as a working-class stereotype with very little depth, Jones brought a huge amount to the role, but I do think his portrayal of Hess gives him a lot more room to work with, and it utilises the intelligence and thoughtfulness that Jones had in real life. He unfortunately passed away at the age of 51 back in 1988. Marlene Clark, who played the sultry Ganja, had already appeared in a few significant movies, such as Son of Blob, Night of the Cobra Woman, and the exploitation film Slaughter, all from 1972. She'd later have roles in Enter the Dragon, The Beast Must Die, Black Mamba, and Switchblade Sisters. Luther was played by Sam L. Wayman, who also composed the music for the film, whilst Archie was played by Leonard Jackson, who would be a very recognisable character actor in stuff like Car Wash, The Colour Purple, Basket Case 2, Boomerang and Conspiracy Theory. Amongst the crew, though, not many of them actually went on to do much else, sadly. It seems as though it was a similar story to Sweet Sweetback. The only person of note is the editor, Victor Konevsky, who later worked on two movies for cult director Joel Reed, namely Bloodbath and Bloodsucking Freaks, which we've covered on Nasty Pasty previously. Upon its release, Ganja and Hess was actually pretty well received by critics, who lauded its uniqueness and compared it favourably with Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Despite winning an award at Cannes, initial box office returns were poor, and the producers decided to take the film out of distribution almost immediately and re-release it after edits. They recut the film to make the narrative and structure more conventional and saleable, adding in additional footage not seen in the original print, as well as a brand new soundtrack, and releasing it under the new title of Blood Couple, which ran over half an hour shorter than the original version. Presumably this was done to salvage some of their original intention to cash in on the success of Blackula, but Gunn was unhappy with their treatment and disowned the cut-down version. The same print again was retitled in 1975 as Double Possession and re-released to get more money out of it before the film disappeared altogether. Ganja and Hess wouldn't make it across the pond to the UK or Europe and for a very long time the film was considered lost. It wasn't until director Spike Lee crowdfunded to produce his own remake of the film that interest sparked up again in it and it was subject to a revival. 
The virtually identical remake was released in 2014 as The Sweet Blood of Jesus, and it was the same year when the UK received the film for the first time where it passed uncut on Blu-ray. So, that was Ganja and Hess. Are you all still awake? Kudos to you if you are. We'll now move on to our final film in this episode. 1976's Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde. Esteemed medical doctor Henry Pride takes some investors around his institute, assisted by Dr. Billy Worth, his assistant. He later travels to a local clinic to see more patients, one of which is a kind-hearted prostitute called Linda. After treating her, she criticises his outlook on the dangers of her profession, telling him that he's out of touch with what happens in the ghetto. Back at the hospital, he begins working in his lab on his main project, a cure for extreme cirrhosis of the liver. Testing his solution on a lab rat, he's confused when its fur becomes whiter after a few moments, and it changes temperament, becoming aggressive to the other rats and to Pride himself. After a long night, Pride falls asleep at his desk and is awoken by Dr. Worth in the morning, only to discover the white rat has killed its fellow rats in the cage. At the local clinic, a middle-aged alcoholic called Emily is admitted, which Pride suggests is an opportunity to test his cure on, though Worth expresses concerns about the ethics of this. Pride goes ahead anyway, only for Emily to awaken with pale skin, violently attacking a nurse before falling back unconscious, her black skin colour returning. Worth and Pride receive word that she's died, and Worth is shocked when Pride admits that he used his formula on her. Without knowing when he'll get another human guinea pig to experiment on, Pride injects himself with the mixture later on at home before bed. Feeling unwell, he drops to the floor in pain and rapidly becomes pale-skinned and monstrous before venturing out and driving off in his car. Asking for directions to the Moonlight Lounge, where Linda works, he brutalises a trio of men who mock his attitude and skin colour before heading there. Linda discusses with a friend how she'll never work under a pimp again, even though a pimp called Silky expresses interest in her. Linda's ex-pimp is also bribing Silky with drugs into convincing Linda to return to him. Trying to initiate conversation with her, Silky is met with hostility, only for Pride to turn up and demand that Linda leave with him. 
When she refuses, Silky pulls a knife out on Pride, causing him to pulverise Silky and the other patrons who try to intervene. After being slashed by one of them, Pride makes his escape and reverts to his black skin, causing Silky's goons to look elsewhere for their attacker. The next morning, Linda chats to her roommate, mother of two, Bernice, who worries about her unstable life after the death of her husband. Going to the clinic again, Linda notices the wound on Pride's hand, but is distracted when Pride genially asks her on a date, though specifies that Hanky Panky is off the menu. Back at the lab, Worth is still angry about Pride's experiment on Emily, and goes a step further, explaining that she found another vial missing, which Pride casually dismisses, and causes Worth to run off upset. Pride picks up Linda at Bernice's house and takes her for dinner, which they enjoy, when Pride requests to show Linda a surprise. He reveals that his mother was a maid at a very affluent brothel, and that she became an alcoholic in later life, dying of cirrhosis in front of him when he was only young. They retire to Pride's house where they have a drink, and Pride reveals the surprise, the experimental serum which can regenerate liver cells. When Linda probes about the experimental side, Pride admits about the side effects, which makes the decision for Linda to refuse being a part of it. Pride tries to attempt injecting her anyway, before she requests that Pride do it first. He does so, and transforms in front of her into the pale-skinned form that she recognises, causing her to flee and almost be run over by a police officer. The monstrous Pride gives chase, before ultimately deciding to drive into town. By the next morning, a dead prostitute is found in a derelict building, with her neck crushed with heavy force. That night, a hooker, friend of Linda's called Sissy, is on her way home when she is attacked by the still-transformed Pride. The crimes draw the attention of local cops Jackson and O'Connor, who flitter between the idea of a vigilante killer or a Ripper-style psychopath. While Linda is working, Jackson and O'Connor inquire at the bar, though O'Connor gets aggressive when the bartender refuses to help. Linda overhears and offers her assistance, but realises that Pride might be involved as they ask about any new strangers, and she immediately shuts up. Meanwhile, Silky drops off two of his hookers at a job, only for them to be grabbed and killed by Pride, before Silky tries to take him on. When he realises he can't beat them, Silky flees and is chased by Pride in his car, before being cornered in an alley and run into several times. Pride awakens in his car, returned to normal, and notices blood on the hood of it. Reading the newspapers about the recent killings, he becomes despondent, realising that he is likely responsible. Returning to his work at the lab, Worth reconciles with him as she notices his frail manner, when Linda phones Pride and asks that he meet her at Watts Towers. Getting in the car, Linda implores Pride to give himself in to the police, but when he refuses, she goes straight to O'Connor and Jackson with the truth. Both of them are sceptical, but Jackson interviews Dr. Worth about Pride's experiments, which she is unwilling to discuss. Later that night, Linda is leaving for work, when a transformed Pride chases her back into her apartment building. Bernice tries to fend him off, but is choked and thrown down the stairs, while Linda runs upstairs and flees down the fire escape. Pride chases her through streets and stores, and eventually grabs her in an abandoned furniture shop, knocking her unconscious and carrying her off. Jackson and O'Connor arrive on the scene, forcing Pride to flee to nearby Watts Towers, where he's cornered. Dropping Linda, he flees from the police attack dogs and climbs the towers, just as Worth arrives on the scene to see what has become of him. 
Police helicopters are called in and they locate him, allowing the police officers to open fire after he refuses to climb down. He falls down to the ground, and as Dr. Worth reaches him, she declares her love for him as he dies. After the release of Ganja and Hess, black exploitation was still in full swing and gaining more and more popularity as time went on, but the changes in America were also becoming more and more prominent. The best-selling novel, Roots, Saga of an American Family, was released in 76, and it created a huge amount of interest and sympathy towards African-American culture, so much so that it was adapted into a TV series later on in the 70s. Black History Month was also established as a countrywide observance within the same year, with the president himself stating to seize the opportunity to honour the too often neglected accomplishment of black Americans in every area of endeavour throughout our history. This sort of sentiment was felt all the world over, with a similar cinematic phenomenon happening in the apartheid-ridden nation of South Africa, where local filmmakers and residents began to make their own films whilst underneath a harsh regime. While they couldn't be as openly critical as their African-American counterparts, the desire for change was evident in multiple examples like Death of a Snowman, Kill or Be Killed, Joe Bullitt, The Boxer, The Black Cat and many others. Callum Waddell actually did a great documentary on this phenomenon, which is now dubbed Zaxploitation, called Images of Apartheid in 2018, which is available on certain Blu-ray or DVD releases. I think he's doing another one though soon about the films of Simon Sabela, uh, considered South Africa's first black director, so definitely keep us updated with that one, Callum. And I'm actually covering Joe Bullitt on a future episode of Nasty Pasty, so do keep your eyes out for that one as well, since I'll be covering Zach's exploitation in a little bit more detail. 
Since 73, though, loads of new blaxploitation films had flooded the grindhouses, with examples like Abbey, Black Belt Jones, Black Godfather, Foxy Brown, Sugar Hill, Three the Hard Way, TNT Jackson, Sheba Baby, Black Gestapo, Mandingo, Dolomite, The Human Tornado, Passion Plantation, and The Candy Tangerine Men. It was during 1976 that director William Crane, who'd had success with Blackula, decided to try his hand again at another exploitation film. Now, this one feels a lot different in tone to the first two films we've covered, which is certainly more personal and experimental. This one feels a little bit more commercial and less personal, but this is likely as a result of the huge profits that Blackula made, so the producers wanted to mimic that same level of financial return. Since they'd essentially spoofed Dracula with Blackula and Frankenstein with Blackenstein, the next classical monster on the list was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Filmed under the tentative title of Serum, it's a fairly traditional film with quite a standard classic horror narrative that's quite easy to follow and it doesn't throw anything too unique into the mix, rather than it's a different flavour on a well-known story. It starts in quite a telling fashion, with stereotypical classic horror music and themes, which then riff suddenly into a funky 70s dance music. We'll first talk about the characters, though, and our main anti-hero, Dr. Henry Pride. He's a very educated and thoughtful doctor on first impression. He conducts his medical profession succinctly, rather than be judgmental, he keeps focused on the job at hand. For example, he doesn't denigrate Linda, who's a prostitute. He simply advises it's not the healthiest profession to have, without sounding preachy. In the same way that heroines like Foxy Brown would later portray, he doesn't condone criminal behaviour, but accepts that it's probably one of the few options left for black people to make a living. He even pays out of his own pocket for a mother to buy pills for her ill son later. His perception by other people is usually in tandem with how he appears. His assistant and lover, Dr. Worth, describes him as very kind, whilst around the neighbourhood he's held in high regard due to his charitable work. Linda, however, is one of the few who look a little bit deeper and attribute something else to his behaviour. She says, What would you know about it, big shot doctor? You're the cop out. The only time you're around black people is when you're down here cleaning your conscience. Pride responds by saying the N-word, which, even though this is a black exploitation film, it feels so alien to hear it from Pride's mouth. He feels uncomfortable saying it, like it feels lost on his identity and class now. Linda retorts with, That white coat really suits you, because you don't know nothing about the ghetto. I mean, you dress white, you think white, you probably even drive a white car. And you know what? If I was white, I might just have a chance. We'll discuss this symbolism much more later, but Linda basically criticises Pride for adhering too much to white conventions, such as having a status in society, success amongst a predominantly white community, and a lack of understanding or experience of the problems of African-American communities. To Linda, who is implied to be quite a frequent patient of his, he's living a lie, trying to appease the man and forgetting his own origins. Pride's main goal, of course, is an experimental serum that reverses the effects of alcoholism and liver cirrhosis. As the story progresses, Pride's initial altruistic personality becomes plagued with cognitive dissonances, such as his Hippocratic Oath being rendered forfeit when he decides to test the formula on a dying patient Emily, with no regards to her consent or indeed her life, which is lost in the process. 
Despite her death, Pride is more saddened by the loss of a viable test subject, which really starts to show this slow descent into immorality. His next step is to, of course, inject himself with the formula as Dr. Jekyll would, and he becomes the monster that we're expecting. More on the actual beast in a bit, but essentially what happens is that he causes havoc as the beast and returns to normal after a seemingly random amount of time has passed. It's not quite made clear whether he truly remembers his actions and is simply in denial, or whether he legitimately loses his memory and only pieces together what's happened through the newspaper and rumours. Either way, it soon becomes apparent why this mission becomes so important to him. After a platonic date with Linda, he drives to a grand estate, which he explains used to be a high-class brothel, where his mother worked as a cleaner. Due to her alcoholism, Pride would frequently be left under the care of the countless hookers. Whilst his mother worked, and when she fell ill on the job, Pride called for help only to be virtually ignored by everyone there. She died as a result of not getting help in time, and due to the severity of liver damage caused by her drinking. To this day, although he represses it to a great deal, Pride is clearly emotionally torn by his mother's death. Though he was clearly raised in a dysfunctional family life and a socially and economically poor community, he harbours no love for his community anymore, blaming them for their inaction and unwillingness to help his mother when she needed it most. He remedies this by hastily wanting a successful formula to rescue other people like his mother so that no one else can feel his pain. But in essence, his serum only allows him to vent out the true aggression and hatred that he feels for everyone that reminds him of those who let his mother die. Perhaps Linda was right all along, that he is indeed straddling the two worlds because he doesn't feel like he belongs to either. His corruption becomes ever more permanent and complete when Linda refuses to try the serum herself, causing pride to mumble, what if I insist, throwing all thoughts of consent out the window. After the monster Pride causes even more carnage, Pride begins to almost assimilate the subconscious personalities into his own, talking unreservedly in a different tone and callously his own dark thoughts, such as actually criticising Linda's profession and then preparing to make Linda pay for threatening to go to the police. Linda is another interesting character and one who's the antithesis of Pride's character, Unlike the high social standing of Dr. Pride, Linda is an unashamed lady of the night, and states quite clearly that she's good at it. Whilst clearly not as intellectual as Pride, she's nonetheless a very smart cookie, being able to make enough money to look after herself and her struggling single mother roommate Bernice, as well as steering clear of pimps due to having had a bad experience in the past. In spite of the legal implication of her job, you can warm to Linda as a moral character, since she does what she does to survive and to keep her friends safe. You can sympathise with her plight, that she's stuck prostituting, but dreams clearly of something else. While she's just as generous as Pride, slipping extra bills to her friends to treat her kids, Linda clearly doesn't get to enjoy the finer things in life and has quite a repetitive lifestyle. Her reaction to Pride taking her out to dinner is an indication of this, as she's extremely pleased and impressed, stating, I could get used to this, while for Pride, going out to dinner is no big deal. There is a moment where Linda uses a homophobic slur when her friend Sissy wants to go up to Hollywood to find tricks, as that's where the action is, only for Linda to spout, no, that's where them fags is. While this is not in and of itself peculiar for the 70s, it seems to be structured more as a sly dig to the idea of Hollywood. 
As the film progresses, Linda's morals become more cemented rather than eroded, as her burgeoning tenderness towards pride does nothing to impinge on the immorality she feels he's embracing for wanting to test his serum on her. She doubles down on her values when pride seems to shrug off the responsibility of having killed so many people, and she gives him a chance to do the right thing, or else she will turn him in herself. When her life is chastised by the now unstable pride, she pleads, What else do I know? To that end, she becomes the final girl, as it were, and she's kidnapped by the monster pride in the film's finale. Although it seems like she would be more prominent in the film's story, Pride's lover and lab assistant, Dr Billy Worth, is only really present in the beginning and the end segments, paving the way for Linda and Pride's relationship to form the main crux of the story. Worth clearly loves Pride, and like Linda, she harbours conflicted feelings for the direction of Pride's research. Though she too shares his vision of curing and reversing the effects of alcoholism, she's vehemently opposed to the callous disregard that Pride displays when he uses Emily as a guinea pig. She becomes angry even and decides to shun him when he feels little responsibility for breaking his own moral code, even more so when it becomes apparent that he's hiding his self-medication from her. Still, she loves him too much to consider him completely untrustworthy or beyond help, and staunchly defends him when questioned by Jackson. It may just be that she's in denial as she never truly gets a straight answer from Pride about his own usage of the drug, but she doesn't press him further on this issue. By the end of the film, she realises just what Pride has become, but as he dies in front of her, she chooses to remind people of exactly who he was, rather than what he's become. The de facto cop characters, the Black Jackson and the White O'Connor, are portrayed as relatively respectful to each other. O'Connor values Jackson's opinions and suggestions, despite the fact that he's black, and the two work synergistically to solve the crime, rather than trying to attribute blame to the black community. Being black himself, Jackson offers a lot more valuable insight into the neighbourhood that O'Connor can't really grasp, such as the overwhelming code of silence that black communities exhibit. In his own words, In the black community, Harry, nobody knows nothing, nobody sees nothing, and nobody hears nothing. As previously mentioned when talking about Sweet Sweetback, codes of silence within black communities are not uncommon, simply out of fear of being blamed, punished, or held accountable to crimes that have nothing to do with them. As the investigation goes on, though, O'Connor begins to display some of the behaviours that white cops commonly display in these types of films, such as aggression towards other black people, like the bartender and another fellow officer. So it's unclear whether this respect for everyone is legitimate or only reserved for his partner Jackson. Though in the context of the film, which is about a black man who transforms into a white man, it is sort of understandable, O'Connor's dismissal of Linda's testimony about Pride being the killer as cock and bull is symbolic of the reaction that black people expect when they give their stories to police officers. A huge part of white privilege, for example, is having your testimony believed and held to a higher standard than the testimony of a black person, which is often dismissed or treated with suspicion. Almost to illustrate how hypocritical he is, just a few scenes later, O'Connor believes wholeheartedly Jackson's silly claim that they may be dealing with a haint, which is an archaic term for a ghost passed down in oral tradition from African slaves who worked in the American South. Another instance of this double standard is when Pride is being pursued, with O'Connor imploring his backup to get the dogs. 
Jackson opposes this primitive method of catching their suspect, and O'Connor realises this and instead requests that his backup hold their fire, not wanting needless bloodshed. But then he suddenly reneges on this restraint and orders dogs immediately to catch Pride once Linda is safe. So it appears he flits back and forth between being reasonable and then suddenly caustic depending on his situation. This may just be a not-so-subtle hint on part of the filmmakers that white cops are not to be trusted, especially when compared to Jackson's much more consistent approach to policing. The film's world itself is also very stereotypical for a black exploitation film, set in the lower economic areas of Los Angeles. It's really not a surprise to see a combination free clinic and thrift store within the first five minutes. The majority black cast, in spite of a deeper commentary about their oppression and desperate states of living, reinforce the stereotypes that permeate the genre, such as an abundance of prostitutes, pimps, street thugs and criminals. Linda and Bernice reside in a rundown apartment block, while the rest of the film is set in rundown bars, clubs and deprived streets with abandoned buildings and derelict ruins. It certainly sets the stage for the film to emerge as a contemporaneous urbanised form of the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story, but it does little to avoid relying on already tired tropes involving African-American characters. Other elements of black exploitation also creep their way in, like the unnecessary nudity of Linda's character, even though she's just going in for a stethoscope check, and also the obligatory catfight between Linda and a fellow hooker, with that timeless line, who are you calling a bitch, ho? While these moments are in retrospect not doing the perception of the black community a favour, they are indeed intrinsic to the whole black exploitation movement, which paved the way for black talent to enjoy some success in the film world. In this example, there doesn't seem to be any malice, certainly, in the portrayals, rather than it's just a bit of lazy writing. But of course, we're missing one of the main events of the film, which is the monster form of pride, with makeup effects courtesy of the well-known Stan Winston. In an effort to eschew from the beastly animalistic image of a black madman tearing the city up with uncontrollable rage, the film chooses to make pride transform into a white madman, which plays with the racial subtext quite a bit. Instead of portraying black values and lifestyles as focused on aggression and primitive desires, the white race is instead cast into the limelight, showing that it is the white influence on pride which causes so much fell destruction. In a contrast to the original Mr. Hyde, Pride retains all of his well-spoken lexis and manners, only using his superhuman excessive force when he's treated badly by his fellow black community, who only see him as white. Even though the makeup portrays him as white, it actually feels like a strange albino-like effect rather than an instantly recognisable Caucasian. The, this only becomes notable in the moment when Silky's thugs pursue Pride and don't recognise him because he's reverted, where they explicitly remember that they're chasing a white man. Apart from somehow not noticing that Pride is wearing the exact same clothes as their assailant, it's fairly apparent that Monster Pride was not exactly acting normally and looked quite deathly pale. Makeup aside, the savage version of Pride is actually quite fun to watch, almost like a black version of the Incredible Hulk, able to power slam and throw bodies across the room with ease, even throwing in a few martial arts manoeuvres in there. It's never super explicit though, and the film is virtually bloodless, but it's always fun to watch pompous bad guys think that they can take on a person who will clearly cream them in mutual combat. 
There's one moment of stalking with Linda's friend Sissy, where the required classical tense music is employed for quite a nostalgic horror moment. But for the most part, Monster Pride's appearances end up feeling a little bit schlocky. They're not even too consistent in their logic either, as Pride reverts back after a few hours on the first try, only to then stay in monster form for over 24 hours on the second try, so it's unknown exactly how this serum operates. In keeping with the director's intentions to spoof other monster movies is the fact that he acts so much like Frankenstein in certain scenes, only to then adopt the role of King Kong in the film's finale. While the racial implications of reenacting a giant ape's ascendance of a monumental building are troubling, they are countered by the fact that Pride is considered white when he's transformed. Therefore, the white monster is a part of the problem. When cornered, though, it's notable that Pride doesn't growl or shout in anger. He does, in fact, cry out in pain and fear, possibly because he fears being revealed for who he is. In these moments, there is a bit of sympathy for the creature as he's afraid of the action that will be taken against him, and as the cops converge on his location with helicopters, it's not too difficult to guess where this is going. This theme of whiteness is also prevalent throughout the entire movie. Pride is seen as an outsider by his peers because he acts white and dresses white. While this is a reference to his behaviours being uncharacteristic of black values and manners, It's also reflected in his wardrobe, which is predominantly made up of white garments, even his pyjamas. Linda even makes reference to a white car, which Pride does indeed drive, and this car itself becomes rather a potent symbol. Retaining most of his faculties when he's transformed, Pride searches for victims by driving through the streets in his impressive and expensive vintage Rolls Royce, which, like Hess from the previous film, is a rather atypical car to see a black person drive at that time. The fact that it's titanium white makes it into a clear metaphor for whiteness and power. In a particularly brutal moment, Pride pursues the slippery Silky into an alleyway and uses the car to ram into his body several times, killing him. In this instance, a black pimp is murdered with a literal white power symbol – though in a stylistically similar sense to how a victim eats it in John Carpenter's Christine many years later. It is in fact the car which reveals Pride's crimes, as he notices blood atop the Spirit of Ecstasy car ornament. Quite a potent image, if ever there was one. All in all, there's plenty of subtext in this film to actually comment on what was happening in America at the time, but it is stifled somewhat by the stereotyped characters and writing. In spite of this, Dr. Black Mr. Hyde is pretty enjoyable schlock, and it has enough interesting elements to make it a worthwhile addition to your exploitation library. It's certainly not as meaningful or as personal as the first two films that we've covered, but it does bridge the gap between the typical genre films and the more experimental experiences. Dr. Pride was played by actor Bernie Casey, who'd already appeared in stuff like Cleopatra Jones and Cornbread Earl and Me. Post-Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, he'd appear in the TV creature feature It Happened at Lakewood Manor, or Ants, as it's sometimes called, the TV series Roots, the 007 movie Never Say Never Again, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and In the Mouth of Madness with Sam Neill. He sadly passed away in 2017. Rosalind Cash, who also starred in Cornbread Earl and Me, as well as the 1971 version of The Omega Man, played the role of Billy Worth. She later cropped up in Golden Girls, Knots Landing, and the silly 1989 slasher Death Spa. 
Marie O'Henry, who played Linda, had only a small filmography, but she still appeared in some very decent exploitation flicks, like 1974's Rape Squad and the video nasty Human Experiments in 1979. G2 Kambuka played Jackson, who was already a fairly well-established actor, having appeared in William Crane's previous film, Blackula, as well as 1975's Mandingo. After William Crane's second project, he went on to Fun with Dick and Jane, Bachelor Party, Doing Time, and Walter Hill's remake of Brewster's Millions. His sidekick, O'Connor, was played by Milt Cogan, who appeared in a lot of TV during the early 70s on stuff like Starsky and Hutch and The Six Million Dollar Man. But he did crop up in a few other films of note, such as Bachelor Party and Brewster's Millions, with his co-star, G2 Kambuka, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and The Descendants. Silky's unnamed drug pusher was played by Mark Alamo, who had bit parts in stuff like Grizzly 2, The Concert, The Last Starfighter, and Total Recall, whilst Emily was played by Cora Lee Day, who popped up in the Tina Turner story, What's Love Got to Do With It? As explained before, director William Crane was known for his influential Blackula film in 1972, which spawned its own sequel without the involvement of Crane. Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde is his only other film of note, as he spent the rest of his career on TV on stuff like Dukes of Hazard and Starskin Hutch. Producer Lawrence Walner is credited here as the ideas writer, who worked in his main line of producing on stuff like Deliver Us From Evil and Raw Force while the other writer, Larry Lebron, this film is his sole credit. One of the producers, Charles Walker, actually spent the majority of his career on small bit parts for TV, such as Dallas, Knight Rider, The A-Team, and more recently, Without a Trace and Community. The music was done by Johnny Pate, who worked on 1973's Shaft in America and the 70s Shaft TV series, as well as the TV movie Satan's Triangle and Sudden Death. The cinematographer, Tak Fujimoto, had already worked in similar fields with Caged Heat and Death Race 2000, but he went on to a slew of well-known projects like Blackout, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Cocoon the Return, Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, The Sixth Sense, Signs, The Mancurian Candidate and The Happening. Makeup guy Stan Winston has been mentioned so often on this podcast that you just need to do a quick Google and you'll know his work instantly. A lesser known but equally talented special effects guy from the crew was Harry Woolman, who'd worked on several of the video nasties, namely Love Camp 7, The Executioner, Don't Go Near the Park and Evil Speak, but he also worked on projects like The Incredible Melting Man, A Scream in the Streets and other black exploitation flicks like Dolomite, Candy Tangerine Man and The Human Tornado. It was released very early in January of 1976, to a rather mild reception. It was profitable, and it seemed to be a hit with the black audiences, but critics were not too won over by its campy comical tone, and it ultimately didn't make the studio the exact profits that it was hoping for. Presumably due to the disappointing figures, director William Crane didn't helm any further films as a director, and the film kind of disappeared from the public eye. After its theatrical run, it went on to VHS into various forms in the 80s, one of which actually retained the original title of Serum, but none came across the pond to the UK or Europe, not even in the cinemas. And it so far still hasn't received a UK release on DVD or Blu-ray, which is a bit of a shame because it's certainly not a bad film. 
It's likely because it's not one of the most well-regarded black exploitation films, especially in regards to Pam Greer titles. But one day we can hope, eh? So since 1976, evidently we still haven't progressed enough. As I still write these words, the protests of Black Lives Matter are still ongoing, and rightly so. Accountability still needs to happen in the US for many innocent black lives, and the rest of the world needs to also take a look in the mirror about how we're dealing with this. I mean, here in the UK, statues of slavers are being pulled down, neo-Nazis have turned up saluting near Winston Churchill's statue, and British TV episodes are being removed from streaming services which contain racist language or offensive blackface portrayals. It clearly is having an effect. There's a palpable change happening in the world at the moment, and I just hope that finally there'll be some real change for our black brothers and sisters. The world has never been more noticeably polarised in its politics and values, and we seem to be forgetting the most important thing, that we all want to just live alongside each other peacefully and without harm coming to us. We haven't been so kind to black people recently, and hopefully by celebrating the works of three brilliant black directors, I can at least offer the first step into educating ourselves about our fellow man's long-endured struggles. I'll be returning shortly with another black exploitation horror episode, this time covering Blackula with the assistance of Johnny Larkin from the seminal Screaming Queens podcast. But I've also got another Nasty Pasty episode already in the bag covering The Girl in Room 2A, which is a little-known Jallo picture, but that'll be released within the following few weeks. I hope that everyone out there keeps safe and keeps faith that everything will turn out positively, as I know that there's not much that we can do from our homes. But as ever, though, please take care, and I'll speak to everyone soon. Goodbye. <laughs>